You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's the most famous invasion that never happened. Someone peering out of that black hole through luminous disks. The eyes, it might be a face. Martians come to Earth and attack the populace. When, in 1898, writer H.G. Wells published his novel, The War of the Worlds, it was received favorably. When Orson Welles dramatized this story in a radio play, well, the reception was bumpier. People whose radios were tuned to the Columbia Broadcasting System, which was in the evening of October 30th, 1938, the night before Halloween, heard disturbing first-hand accounts of a strange event in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Something's happening. Hump shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. But then there were reports of real screams in New Jersey and beyond, uh, of desperately frightened people who were calling radio stations. They were fleeing their homes. There, there were even some reports of suicide. The live broadcast of War of the World 75 years ago, it's legendary for its aftermath, the mass hysteria it supposedly created among listeners. It's a big historic deal. Only it didn't quite happen that way. The broadcast certainly occurred on Halloween Eve. The mass panic, probably not. So why focus today on a radio broadcast that was almost four score years ago? Well, it's been remembered as an example of the media's power to send society into a tailspin and also of, if not the gullibility of the public, its malleability. And if the War of the Worlds didn't create all this mayhem, well, then how did the myth arise that it did? And another reason we want to talk about it, it's just plain fun. The War of the Worlds is an example of dramatic storytelling at its finest, and it's about Martians. We're still obsessed with Martians, at least I am. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to our monthly look at critical thinking, skeptic check from Big Picture Science. And now, back to our regularly scheduled program. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. Okay, so why the broadcast was compelling and why it had the potential to alarm listeners? Well, first, it employed a news bulletin format in which a solemn newscaster makes increasingly urgent breaks into scheduled programming. Uh, In this case, it was a music show. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time... Right, and and look, it was 1938. Europe was on the eve of a world war. Radio listeners had only recently been introduced to the phrase, we interrupt this broadcast, because they were cutting in the first dispatches from CBS correspondent Edward R. Murrow and his boys, who were covering the gathering storm from London. CBS World News now brings you a special broadcast from London. This is London calling Columbia, New York. It was announced that a two-hour ultimatum had been delivered to Germany. 
The threat posed by Hitler was real. Invasion was on everyone's mind. So back to that night. Let's set the stage. It is 1938. There's this gathering storm in Europe. People are listening to their radios. Now, what they may not have heard, because perhaps they tuned in late, was a disclaimer of a sort. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Orson Welles. He wasn't yet Citizen Kane or even a star. He was just 23 years old and doing live broadcasts for the Mercury Theater on the air. You know, he helped found that theater, Mercury Theater. Yeah, it was such an incredible talent. And this was so compelling because it was so believable. And remember, in 1938, there weren't any tape recorders. They were just doing this standing up in front of microphones live. If they flubbed, well, it just went out over the air. But what unfolded that October night was basically the retelling of the H.G. Wells novel. Martians come to Earth to wreak havoc and destruction. And since then, it's been made into a movie, twice actually, including my favorite movie ever. But this is a live broadcast in 1938, and the story was not yet a familiar one. But it's a good one. So anyway, the drama builds. There are these breaking news reports of strange explosions on Mars. Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. And a reporter does a field interview with astronomer Richard Pearson at Princeton for an explanation of what might be going on. You're quite convinced as a scientist that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Phillips, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor... I wonder how many people noticed that this guy, Professor Pearson, and an early narrator in the story were the same guy, Wells himself. Okay, so the horror is building as the aliens pop out of their cylinders and they begin destroying New Jersey with their heat rays. There they go. The giant arm raised. Green flash. They're spraying us with flame. 2,000 feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left, drop on them, plane and all. So you can imagine, I mean, given all that, the the world on the brink of war, the specter of invasion, the narrative device of breaking news, on-the-spot interviews, I mean, it was reasonable that some people would believe that Martians were cooking humanity to death with their heat rays. Now, if this were actually happening, panic would be a normal response. I mean, I've always said myself, I don't think aliens have any reason to be hostile to us, but if their ships landed on the White House lawn, I'd decamp for the hills. And so the reports came of this mad flight. Even the New York Times reported that there was mass hysteria. Real people frightened out of their wits. They were running into the streets, supposedly jamming phone lines with panic calls. It was all quite dramatic. But bubble-bursting time, at least myth-busting, subsequent research has shown that the famous accounts of panic were greatly exaggerated. Michael Sokolow did some of his own digging into the matter. He's an associate professor of communication and journalism at the University of Maine. Michael, before we dispel any myths here, what is the popular understanding of what happened when Orson Welles aired The War of the Worlds on October 30th, 1938? The popular understanding is that hundreds of thousands, if not a million people, ran on the streets screaming, frightened. It was an imitation newscast. And the newscast was reporting an invasion, right? I mean, this was an invasion, this was an invasion not of Canadians coming down to the uh, to New Jersey, but Martians coming down to New Jersey. This, this was the H.G. Uh, Wells story from something like 40 years earlier, right? Right. And, and the artistry of the program is fantastic because there was intermixed music. There were, there were things done specifically to confuse the viewer into thinking they were listening to a regular radio show. Okay. Well, let me establish the storyline of the broadcast. Uh, in the original H.G. Wells story, the Martians come to Earth. They're in search of, well, who knows what? I think they were in search of water, right? And they actually invade the planet and eventually are vanquished by uh, our bacteria, and that's what the broadcast uh, reprised. Uh, yes, they invaded from Mars. and uh, But remember, the invasion happens much later in the program. The first 15 to 20 minutes of the program are a, a regular orchestra from a hotel in New York with regular network announcements and that, that are broken into by news breaks. The actual battle and the actual Martians show up very late in the program. And, and where do they invade? Grover's Mill, New Jersey, which is a real place. I believe it's somewhere around Princeton, Cranberry, that kind of area in, in central New Jersey. 
okay, so this Grover's Mills was seeing Martians coming down and people reacted to the broadcast supposedly with mass hysteria. Can you tell me what some of the reports were that were appearing in the media? There were reports of riots on the streets. There were reports of tunnels in and out of Manhattan being jammed. There were reports of emergency rooms being jammed. One of the worst reports, I'll be honest with you, was a suicidal woman who was saved by a telephone call. This appeared in the New York Times, about to take poison, listening to the broadcast, things like that. Okay. I I recall reading somewhere that there was one guy who was actually happy about this invasion because he thought the Martians might get his mother-in-law. Did you ever hear that? I did hear. And there's another person, a man who was having an affair, who confessed his affair, cashed out his bank account. That that was another rumor because he thought the world was ending. (laughs) I see. Okay. So... This has been the understanding of the War of the Worlds 1938 broadcast, that the media had misled the public. This was, after all, a fictional piece. This was a a story. Uh, But uh, people were reacting in panic. At least that's what was being claimed. Now, these claims apparently were overblown. Uh, How did you find out? Well, if you go back to the original documents, okay, on that night, October 30th, 1938, the Hooper Ratings Corporation called 5,000 Americans during this broadcast. And 2% of them were listening to CBS or the Orson Welles show. And none of them said they were listening to a news broadcast. None of them mentioned a panic or a fright. So right off the bat, 98% of America had never even heard the broadcast. CBS ran a survey the following morning. And, you know, the results really correlated. So if you start with the research that was done on the audience immediately, 12 hours or less, and compare it to what the story became, you have to come to that conclusion, I believe. There were a couple of key players in the reaction to this. In particular, you talk about Frank Stanton, the CBS executive who went on to become president of CBS, I think, a decade later or so, and a sociologist, Paul Lazarfield. These guys were collaborating in terms of managing what was happening. What did they do? Well, they, they got very lucky because they had started the Office of Radio Research, one of the very first attempts to really survey what the mass media was doing, specifically radio, in the 1930s. And they were having trouble finding really precise measurements, and then suddenly this broadcast fell right into their laps. And so uh, Frank Stanton ran into his office, where he was the director of research at CBS, called his friend Lazarsfeld, and the next morning an insurance firm in Atlanta, and they used an insurance firm because of the network of contacts and the ability to put a survey immediately in the field was the best. And they, um, they came up with a very quick questionnaire, and they got it out first thing the next morning. And what did it show? It backed up what the Hooper rating said. Uh, Frank Stanton's exact quote about it was, one, almost nobody heard the broadcast, and number two, those who heard the broadcast thought it was a drama and weren't fooled. So did the media react to that? Did they sort of pull back, pull in their horns a little bit and say, well, actually, folks, you know, the reaction wasn't quite as dramatic as we had told you? No. um, In fact, the opposite happened. Uh, For two or three days, the newspapers went crazy. And that gets to an intermedia battle of the 1930s. It was known as the Press Radio War. This is the Depression, and they're fighting for survival over advertising dollars. And because this was a phony news broadcast, this was the perfect opportunity for newspapers to attack radio. And so they were deliberately repeating these supposed results, these supposed reactions, even though that had been disproved. Were they aware of the fact that it had been disproved by the efforts of Stanton and Lazarfeld? No. I want to be clear about that. The Stanton-Lazarfeld is a secret proprietary survey. I haven't seen it. Nobody's seen it. It only appears in a reprinted version in scholarly books for people who've had access to it. People were very secretive about the results. Even the Hooper one didn't come out for weeks later because everybody thought the government would really come down on them. Everybody was very afraid, even though this would defend them. CBS to this day hasn't released that survey. There was a lot of media attention at the time. I mean, the reporters were mobbing CBS headquarters in New York. Isn't that true? And and Orson Welles was talking to them. Absolutely, because there were these rumors. There were these people on the street. I'm not saying that nothing happened. So, for instance, uh, the telephone exchanges, of many of them were jammed in the New York area. But we don't know what those telephone calls were about. They may have been people repeating stories they heard of other people panicking. They may have been people simply saying, turn on this great program. (laughs) We We don't know what caused all those phone calls. But the newspaper reporters did have something to work with. Well, presumably we do know what Orson Welles himself was saying. What was he saying? Well, there's interesting debate about that. A a wonderful book by Paul Heyer called The Medium and the Magician argues that 
Wells gave a shocked news conference right there in CBS headquarters because the reporters were telling Wells that people had died and committed suicide because of his broadcast. So for many years, people thought Wells was really shocked and devastated. When in fact, Hayer discovered in some of the Wells papers in Indiana, it may have been the greatest acting performance of Wells's career. So, Michael, how many people really were upset by the broadcast of the War of the Worlds? I mean, you know, I've read that a million people were driven into panic by this. Right. The question you ask is a fascinating one because it gets right to the question of categories, right? Are we to say that people were frightened by it or were people panicked by it? Because radio in the 1930s was designed to frighten you. The Shadow Knows, Lights Out, those kind of programs. And we know those shows affected people in a really interior way because radio is this hot medium. It's very different from television in that way. And War of the Worlds fits right into that category. I think what makes War of the Worlds different is people assume there was a panic, a true panic, at a whole different level, that people were almost terrorized. And you can think of those words. I'm not doubting that there was quite a bit of fright that night, but I don't think it was much more than Lights Out, The Shadow Knows, and those kind of programs. Well, but the times were also different, were they not? I mean, this is the fall of 1938. Invasions really are happening around the world, not in Grover's Mills, New Jersey, but in places like Czechoslovakia. I mean, the public might have been primed to believe in this kind of catastrophic uh, influx of foreigners, if you will. I absolutely agree with you, and especially because CBS was the network that decided to break into all its programming during the Munich crisis. So if you were an habitual listener of CBS, the previous month you would have gotten something like 150 news, emergency news broadcasts about the situation in Europe heading towards war, and you would have been primed for this kind of thing. But let's remember, the audience was teeny. It was so teeny that 98% of the people surveyed on that night during that time were either not listening to it or listening to something different. This show aired against the number one rated broadcast in America. Finally then, Michael, what's the big picture? What's the take-home message here? Because it seems somewhat counterintuitive, but it sounds like uh, maybe the media do not have the kind of sway over us that we think, at least if we take it face value, this perception that there was mass panic, there were deaths, whatever, and that that wasn't true. And it could be that we experience things supplied to us by the media, but we don't go nonlinear about it. I, I agree. I think that is the takeaway. I think there's many examples where the public did not react as people thought they would. I mean, if we move out of the realm of fiction into the realm of fact, uh, if you look at several months following some of the most devastating attacks in America, whether it's 9-11, whether it's Pearl Harbor, there were arguments in the media that there was going to be slaughters and massacres of thousands, of, for instance, of the Japanese following Pearl Harbor or in, after 9-11. And there were isolated anecdotal incidences, but statistically speaking, the kind of massive retaliatory panic that people thought would occur didn't really occur. You know, it occurs to me that within years after this broadcast, uh, only a few years, Joseph Goebbels in Germany was using the media to shape public opinion and uh, I think was fairly successful. Do you think he took a lesson from all this? Oh, uh, Joseph Goebbels commented the next day, the newspaper reports are available at a website called crossroadsxrods.com. Look at the radio in the 1930s website there. The Nazi press loved this story, and they played it up very highly for several weeks, uh, specifically because it occurred after Munich, and they thought the American newspapers were warmongering. And they said, look, here's an example of why the American people think we Germans are aggressors, because they assume everybody's coming to get them. The American people aren't smart enough not to believe their media. Michael Sokolow, thank you so very much for talking with us. Thank you. Michael Sokolow is an associate professor of communication and journalism at the University of Maine. What's interesting here is that the media didn't correct themselves once they learned that really the panic was overblown. Uh, you can understand why CBS might not do that because, after all, their show was a success, at least measured in terms of audience reaction. And, you know, for Orson Welles, it was a testament to his artistry. Yeah, no such thing as bad publicity, right? And and Mercury Theater of the Air was being threatened with cancellation. Um, and certainly after this broadcast, it was renewed. And Wells himself went on to become a star. You know, that's a lesson for all people who are in radio and television today, I suppose. Which is what? <laughs> well, yeah, do something provocative and misleading, and your show will be re-upped for a new season. That's a terrific message for a skeptic check program. <laughs> 
coming up. That was then, 75 years ago, when radio and newspaper were the media threads that bound us. Today, Google, Twitter, Facebook, it would be hard to imagine being fooled by Wells Broadcast today, but that doesn't mean we can't be fooled. Why Americans Love a Conspiracy. It's our monthly look at critical thinking, skeptic check, War of the Worlds from Big Picture Science. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, so maybe mass mayhem didn't follow the broadcast of the War of the Worlds. Millions of hapless souls weren't fooled into believing that malevolent Martians had materialized on Earth to disrupt their gusto-grabbing lifestyle with high-pressure vaporization. But that doesn't mean Americans can't be hoodwinked. There are stories that we swallow hook, line, sinker, pole, and tackle box. According to Jesse Walker, Americans love a conspiracy. Yeah, you say that like conspiracies don't exist when the truth is you can't handle the truth. And yes, here I borrow from Jack Nicholson in the film A Few Good Men, because he was also in The Shining, which everyone who reads Reddit knows is an allegory about the CIA's mind control program. There is so much blackout stuff going on, and wait, what was that noise? Anyway, it's all on the interweb, but some stuff is obvious. For one, prove that aliens aren't here. See? And want to know why Oswald couldn't have killed Kennedy? Because Kennedy is still alive, running the government from underground in Toronto. Just Google JFK and Secret Bunker. But hey, if you want to call conclusions drawn from facts paranoid, it's a free... Hold up. What was that? Are they listening in? I I gotta go. (laughs) Are we off the rails paranoid? Some of us, yes, at times. Most of us, maybe a little. A senior editor at Reason Magazine, Jesse Walker's book is The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory. Maybe the 1938 broadcast of War of the Worlds didn't send droves of people into the streets, but Jesse Walker says the reports that it did left a popular impression that Americans will buy into anything. After the play aired, uh, Walter Lippmann, a very prominent political commentator, uh, wrote an essay that he warned against crowds that drift with all the winds that blow and are caught up at last in the great hurricanes. And he said that these masses without roots are the chaos in which the new Caesars are born. This intense fear of uh, mass society, mass culture, and you know the impact of a new communications medium, radio, which, you know, more, you know, older elites weren't quite sure about uh, how it might be used, what sorts of demagogues might seize it. So would you say that this was really instrumental in feeding the notion that Americans could be manipulated by the media? Because that's a very popular notion. And and maybe it was the arrival of radio itself that, that generated that. To what extent was the War of the Worlds broadcast responsible? Yeah, whether or not it's responsible for it, it became the story people told. It became this just-so fable um, that you know people people could point to to illustrate the dangers of a man with a microphone and an audience that's easily misled. Well, you write that Americans do love conspiracy theories, and even if they didn't really think we were under attack in 1938, a lot of them think that the aliens are afoot in the land today. Uh, what is it that Americans believe? I mean, that, that sounds like a, a kind of irrational point of view. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that uh, the belief that aliens are among us is not very well supported, to say the least. But again, you know, when a story catches on, it says something about the anxieties and the experiences of the people who believe it. So I divide conspiracy stories into five categories. I call them the uh, the enemy outside, the enemy within, the enemy below, and the enemy above. Can you give me an example? 
Sure. Um, the, an example of the enemy outside. I mean, that's when you know an alien force outside the community's gates um, that's trying to transform and subvert or conquer the community. And the earliest examples in American history were settlers' fears of uh, Indian conspiracies, which often went beyond just thinking that Indians might be planning to attack, and and, and went into you know vast baroque tales of uh, Satan uh, uh, literally coming to America, bringing the Indians with them, and and manipulating manipulating all their attacks on the settlers. The enemy within, by contrast, the uh, alien is among us. It looks like you. It could be your coworker. It could be in your own family. The, the classic example is the Salem witch trials. And a great pop culture example would be uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, any uh, story about you know, pod people. The enemy below uh, is uh, down at the bottom of the social ladder, threatening to overturn the social order. And the, the classic American examples are uh, the, the fears in, in, the, in, uh, in antebellum America of conspiracies uh, to foment slave revolts. And then the enemy above is any story about a secret government or some other powerful institutions, you know, corporate America or secret society or so on. The, a lot of what you think of as the classic conspiracy stories about government cover-ups uh, fall into that category. And when we say conspiracy, I presume that the definition in this context of that word is simply that this is a, that this is a directed, this is a deliberate effort, whatever the effort might be. Yeah, that it's uh, going on in secret, that there's more than one party involved, and that whatever is happening in society has some sort of intelligence behind it. So your book has America in the title, and that suggests there's something about paranoia, something about believing in conspiracies that's uh, particularly American. Is there? Well, I'm not claiming that America is more paranoid than all the other nations of the world. Obviously, there's lots of conspiracy theories in the Middle East, in, in Russia, Latin America, and elsewhere. But there, whatever stories catch on in any um, particular culture then tells you things about that culture. It becomes folklore. So I would say that the history of political paranoia in America reflects the distinct history of the United States. I mean, the stories of the enemy outside reflect the experiences of a country with a frontier that had um, not just, you know, the uh, you know Indians as, as political rivals, but it is, could be imagined as uh, representing sort of the anarchic new world. You could look at conspiracy stories that people spread about the urban riots in the 1960s that are dramatically similar to uh, stories that were told about, you know, alleged uh, slave plots in the antebellum South. In uh, the 1940s, um, you know, blacks were rumored to be covertly aligned uh, either you know, with the Germans, uh, supposedly via a secret organization called the Swastika Club, or with the Japanese, uh, supposedly with a secret organization called the Black Dragon Society. This is, on the one hand, a very distinct story of the moment, the anxieties involved with you know, World War II colliding with you know, the traditional Southern hierarchy, but it also... Uh, reflected a long history of stories about outside agitators coming in and, and stirring up trouble. When you're sitting around at lunch with other people and they hear you've written a book about this subject, uh, do they uh, ask you what the consequences are of uh, current conspiratorial explanations for what's going on in the world today? I mean, obviously things like uh, 9-11, the global warming, there's a conspiracy to, you know, tell you something that might not be true and so forth and so on. Are, are these significant beyond being kind of a pesky annoyance? Well, it, again, it's important to remember we're not just talking about fringe people here. The 9-11 truth movement, as, as they call themselves, who believe that, you know, 9-11 was an inside job is, is interesting. And I have some discussion of them in, in the book. But in a way, they're a sideshow to the much larger sort of paranoia that followed 9-11, the, the kind that had people seeing a little bit of a spilled coffee a sweetener or, or something like that in an airport lounge and uh, figuring an anthrax attack must be underway. Or the kind that imagined not just Osama bin Laden as a villain, which is true, but as a sort of a supervillain with a James Bond-style lair uh, in the mountains of Afghanistan. And you may remember, you know, newspapers reprinting these alleged diagrams of this sort of vast uh, underground uh, high-tech uh, headquarters that he supposedly had, and which, of course, turned out to be a, a myth. So this sort of um, 
conspiratorial thinking. It's not just, you know, the groups that we think of as as being um, out on the fringe and, and saying something weird. It, it often is uh, you and me. I, I mean, I know that uh, I heard some rumors right after 9-11 about what the next attack would be, and I sort of thought twice about, oh, geez, maybe that's true, and it turned out not to be. I say at the beginning, I'm using the word paranoia colloquially, not clinically. I'm talking about something that everyone is capable of, including you, me, and the Founding Fathers. Jesse Walker, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Jesse Walker is a senior editor at Reason Magazine, and he's the author of The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory. He says he's the author, but check out his entry in Wikipedia Sub Rosa for the truth. Well, Jesse Walker talks about different interpretations of aliens, alien visitors, and of course we have been speaking about aliens. Martians are aliens, and we're fascinated with Martians. Yeah, but why is it that Mars is often the subject of these conspiracy theories? I mean, from the famous face to NASA's supposed cover-ups of small artifacts that are littering the landscape. Well, it's not just conspiracy theories. We're fascinated by the red planet in a way that you could say other planets of the solar system might envy. For a perspective of what's happening on the planets in War of the Worlds, a reporter talks to the famous astronomer Professor Pearson. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disc swimming in a blue sea. But we'll talk to Kevin Schindler at the Lowell Observatory in Arizona. Because while the 1938 broadcast of War of the Worlds is well known, what is less well known, perhaps, is that there was already 60 years of astronomy behind that story, and it all began in Italy. In 1877, Mars was making a close approach to the Earth, And in that year, an astronomer in Italy discovered what he called canali, these linear features crisscrossing all over the planet Mars. And if we jump forward to the 1890s, uh, the Italian astronomer Schiaparelli is losing his eyesight, but an American named Percival Lowell decided he wanted to pick up where Schiaparelli left off, um, become an astronomer, and study Mars and this possibility of intelligent life, which is what he thought those canals represented. Did Scaparelli claim that these were artificially dug canali? Because, you know, canali might just mean natural canyons. Right. The Italian word translates to channels, which which indicates sort of a natural feature. But Percival Lowell, and Lowell wasn't the only one, but he was the loudest one. Percival Lowell said, you know, nothing in nature can be this straight across the entire planet. So we intentionally kind of changed the word slightly to, to canal because he did think that it indicated intelligent life. Well, now the idea certainly had backing. Percival Lowell was a Harvard graduate, a very smart guy. He built his own observatory there in Flagstaff where you now have a job. What was the mood of the public? Did they subscribe to this idea that there were canal-digging Martians? Lowell was quite a spokesman. He was a sort of a Carl Sagan of his time in a lot of ways that he popularized astronomy and the research he was doing. And so he made this concept of possible life on Mars, he really popularized it. And so the public really ate this stuff up. Is it for sure that H.G. Wells was inspired, if you will, by these claims of canal-digging Martians? The storyline has always been that both Wells and Edgar Rice Burroughs were big Lowell files and wrote their stuff based on Percival Lowell's um, inspiration. Now, I've never found the smoking gun that said, you know, H.G. Wells says, yes, Percival Lowell is why I wrote this. However, if we think about the time, Lowell made such a big thing about life on Mars, it was sort of an awareness, a cultural awareness. So he really built that up enough to where even if, you know, they didn't cite him specifically, it was just sort of an awareness that people had that there might be life there. I just wonder, uh, maybe you know, did the Lowell Observatory get any calls from the public during uh, the 1938 Orson Welles radio show? You know, I've never seen any or talked to any staff that were around at that time. They've never mentioned anything like that. Um, It wouldn't be surprising because even today when when something unusual astronomically is happening, um, we certainly get a lot of calls. Now, I think I can say without fear of contradiction that Mars is and always has been everyone's favorite inhabited planet, even if we still don't know if it's inhabited. It's not the closest planet to Earth, but it's nonetheless the favorite. Why is that? Well, I think, you know, a lot of it is because Percival Lowell built this awareness, this idea that there might be life there. You know, we never see 
science fiction movies with Saturnians attacking Earth or Plutonians. It's always Martians <laughs> because he really built that awareness. So I think it's partly that, partly, you know, Mars is red color, this mysterious, sometimes very bright object in the sky. And then we have Edgar Rice Burroughs, H.G. Wells, and certainly many other writers. And then today we have lots of movies with a common theme. Well, movies or not, I mean, it's still the place where the big space agencies spend the greatest effort looking for life. Although, of course, if there are Martians, they won't be digging canals. Maybe, maybe they'd be living in them. <laughs> but it's still target number one for those looking for life beyond Earth. And that's a really good point. And that's, you know, another reason they that Mars has been sort of a compelling thing is that, you know, it was believed back then to be very similar to the Earth. It had an atmosphere. We could see polar ice caps on it. Uh, Venus, we were never able to see the surface because it was always shrouded in clouds. But Mars, you know, from what we could see through telescopes, even back in Lowell's days, you know, it looks very similar to Earth. Today we know that the atmosphere is very thin and is mostly carbon dioxide, um, which would be poisonous for us to breathe in. But back then, they, based on what they knew, it looked like the most similar planet out there to Earth. Well, I mean, it's true that Lowell himself, in a, in a way, got it wrong, claiming that uh, the Martians were busy with these shovel-ready projects trenching up their planet. Yeah, we know today that there's not the intelligent life like he thought, but he, he thought there was intelligent life not just because of those canals, but because of an advanced theory of evolution that was put forward by Herbert Spencer. And Darwin's theory of evolution, um, which was just put forth in 1859, talked about biological changes. But others took evolution and interpreted it in different ways. Herbert Spencer thought that everything in the universe can evolve. And Lowell took this to mean, you know, look at planets. We have young planets that are gaseous like Saturn and Jupiter. And then they advance through middle age like Earth. Um, they get solid. They develop life. And then eventually they dry up and turn into dead rocks um, like Mercury. And he believed that Mars was sort of in the same place as Earth heading on its way to Mercury to become sort of a dead planet, but it's still in a stage of its evolution where there should be life there. And he saw the canals as evidence of that theory. Yeah, it certainly hangs together. Well, finally, Kevin, in the novel War of the mm -hmm. Worlds, the Martians invade the Earth, but they're stopped in their tracks because they get sick. Our bacteria do them in. Yep. Isn't it ironic that today, a century later, Earthlings are sending rovers to invade Mars, and if there are any Martians, it's most likely they are bacteria. You know, somewhere down the road, life is going to end eventually as the solar system continues to develop, or unless we find a way of doing it first. But ultimately, the last thing surviving on Earth will probably be, you know, those, those microorganisms or the cockroaches. You know, all the nasty stuff that survives in any sort of conditions, they're going to long survive us. And, you know, that's sort of if we found any life on Mars, that's pretty much what we would expect. Well, Kevin Schindler, thank you so very much for being with us. Thanks for having us on. Kevin Schindler is an educator at the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. Next, the responsibility of journalists in the podcasting, website, blogging, tweeting, Googling, Facebook posting era. It's Skeptic Check War of the Worlds from Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. In 1938, the newspapers played a pivotal role in inflating the story of a populace panicked by the War of the Worlds broadcast. The New York Times headline? Radio listeners panic, taking war drama as fact. And the New York Daily News? Fake radio war stirs terror through the U.S. Today, someone on Twitter might instead tweet, OMG, Orson Welles' podcast causes public meltdown. Hashtag get a grip, hashtag fail. 
But no one would really tweet that today because long before reports of an invasion of New Jersey caused a public freakout, they'd be quelled on Twitter, Reddit, and Facebook. I'm loving this old-timey radio drama, yo. I wish Martians would invade Trenton, lol. So even if today you heard those realistic news bulletins describing alien attacks and thought they just might be real, a quick search of the Internet would set you straight. But, of course, that doesn't mean that the Internet doesn't spread hoax and myth. Indeed, the web churns like a veritable Grover's mill of rumor. But are the corrective forces of social media stronger than those that might mislead us? Katie Culver is an assistant professor in the School of Mass Communication at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and she is also associate director for the Center for Journalism Ethics there. And as to the idea that the radio broadcast of War of the Worlds would fool anyone today... I doubt it would fool um, anyone today, and and certainly not to the level that people perceive Wells' War of the Worlds frightened people back then. I think the panic was overhyped, and that actually may be the problem that we would see today, that reports of the panic would be part of the misinformation problem. Well, what about the fact that if you heard about this, and and, and if you even tuned in, the next thing you'd do would be to get on the Internet, do a quick search, check your tweets, check your Facebook, and, and find out, you know, what other people thought of this. I mean... Could you actually fool so many of the people for so much of the time? No, you couldn't fool that many people for that much of the time because we do use these social tools to debunk misinformation, but we also use these social tools to spread misinformation. So, for instance, with the Boston Marathon bombings, you saw the online community Reddit falling victim to a whole host of information for quite a sustained period of time as they tried to nobly help with the investigation, but actually were pointing to people who had no involvement whatsoever. So sometimes they're a force for good, but sometimes they're not. Well, that was a case that, I mean, that was based in real events. There's no doubt that the bombing in Boston occurred. And while many of these theories, well, I guess all of these theories were wrong, right? Uh, I mean, people were genuine in trying to help, trying to provide real information. What about the sort of opposite case? I mean, what if I go on the social media and I say that, well, SETI has received a signal that indicates hostile spacecraft are headed for Earth. I mean, there are going to be people who believe that. There certainly are going to be people who believe that. And in academic circles, we talk about something called motivated reasoning, which is no matter how much we have been schooled, and in fact, the effect increases with how much we've been schooled, our personal beliefs affect how we perceive evidence. So we'll counter-argue evidence based on our beliefs if it conflicts with our beliefs. And the more educated we are, the more we will counter-argue because Here in schools, we teach people how to argue quite effectively. So we'll find people who believe in a whole host of of misinformation, some which is put out there specifically to pollute our public sphere, and they fall victim because they're motivated to believe what they believe. That's a very interesting point. I mean, does that explain the fact, something that's always puzzled me, that when they do these polls, do you believe, for example, that aliens crash-landed at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, or, or something like that? that the credulity goes up with the amount of education. If, if you've gone to college, you're more likely to believe that story. Well, uh, I, I'm sorry that I'm not an expert on Area 51, uh, but it is true that education does track with motivated reasoning. So the, the better educated we are, the more likely we are to fight back against evidence that counters our beliefs. And so you'll see some very highly educated people, for instance, promulgating myths about the uh, Affordable Care Act, for instance, and a lot of attempts to counteract that motivated reasoning. You know, things like PolitiFact putting out the 15 top myths about Obamacare or uh, the President's Organizing for America group actually creating a Twitter feed specifically to answer those sorts of things. They've got the the Obama for America truth team, they call it, specifically to debunk things uh, like a, a chain email, for instance, that says that to pay for the Affordable Care Act, we're all going to have a new tax on home sales, which is just patently false, but, but a piece of it, misinformation that brews quite a bit out there. Katie, are there some things that you would say can't ethically be broadcast or printed? I mean, is there some equivalent of shouting fire in a theater someplace that uh, journalists can't go? Oh, sure. I think that there is an ethical obligation to report only that which we have vetted. Uh, For instance, Fox News got in some hot water last week because they accidentally picked up a piece off of a satirical 
a satirical news site, news in quotation marks, so something akin to The Onion, and they accidentally uh, broadcast it as real news. I think they had an ethical obligation to run that information down further to find other sources to verify it rather than engaging in that motivated reasoning and running with it. And if you look at the information, any sort of critical thinking would tell you that this was not true. It was about uh, President Obama putting up personal funds to keep the Museum of Muslim Culture open. And on this website, it located the Museum of Muslim Culture in Jackson, Mississippi, and was trying to compare this to the World War II uh, Veterans Memorial closing during the government shutdown. I think any little bit of fact-checking or critical thinking would have told you that was untrue. And I think journalists have an ethical obligation to engage in that kind of thinking and that kind of verification. Can can you give me an example of misinformation that's been spread that you've seen spin out of control and how the journalists responded to it? Sure. I think a great example from early on in the healthcare debate would be the death panels idea. And that was uh, that was a, and I think still to this day, remains a piece of misinformation that death panels were part of that legislation that's still out there in some circles. And it's something that mainstream journalism has tried to debunk and, and has reported on extensively, and yet the meme still lives on. There are a lot of examples, examples of that. And we see it not just in news, but also just in social media that doesn't involve journalism. You know, in 1938, at the time of the Orson Welles broadcast, people were connected by newspaper and radio. Now, today, of course, we're connected more or less instantly by just about every platform. Given the speed, the ubiquity of these connections, in the end, do you think that the corrective forces of the media can keep the rumor mill uh, contained? Or or is this a sort of a runaway situation where we're just going to lose control? Well, I think you're missing one important thing from the time of Orson Welles' broadcast, and that is we were connected by radio and newspapers, but we were also connected over the back fence. And that's one area where I am hopeful, that not just thinking about journalism ethics, but thinking about a public approach to ethics, that we all have a responsibility to stop misinformation from percolating out. So sometimes when I receive a chain email from friends or family that has what I know is false information, I'll reply all and say, I think you got duped on this one. And here's a link to a website that debunks urban legends. Well, that's certainly a point, isn't it? Because there is apparently a market for websites that sort of uh, take apart this, uh, this kind of sensational news. Absolutely. My favorite is a website called Snopes.com. They've been doing it since the very first day that I was on the internet, way back when I rode my dinosaur into this building. And I think they do a very effective job of tracking down information. And the more that we as individuals share that within our circles, the better off we'll be. Because the kind of radio broadcast that Wells did, that's a mass media response. But we also have to think about interpersonal channels and the power of the credibility that we have with each other because of our connections as human beings. That's a really important piece of the whole media and communication puzzle. The Wells broadcast was thought to have this massive impact, but mass communication research has showed us that um, things are much more complex than that. Those effects are not as simple as people might have believed during the time of that broadcast 75 years ago. Well, finally then, Katie, skeptics and journalists have, in some ways, similar goals, gather the evidence, test the assertions, draw conclusions that get as close to the truth as is possible. So what does it mean to be a good media skeptic these days? I think I think media skepticism is very, very important skill in being a citizen today. Uh, and I think maybe we don't talk enough about what citizenship means, but I do believe media literacy, the movement toward helping kids in schools, helping college students, helping people who have uh, who are in the workforce understand this sometimes polluted information environment we have and how to deal with it, how to find sources, things like PolitiFact, things like Snopes.com, conversations with others, how to find our way to verify information. And I think it's also really important that everybody understand that truth isn't accuracy alone. There are lots of times that I can peddle out one or two facts and marshal them toward a conclusion that isn't actually just. Truth comes from accurate statements put in the correct context. And if I have one main criticism of where we are in today's media environment, it's that we've lost that sense of context. We've drilled down to such small messages in such an amazing lightning speed of time that we've lost the ability to understand them in their true, rich context. And that can lead us to a lot of faults 
faulty conclusions. Katie Culver, thank you so very much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It was delightful. Katie Culver is an assistant professor in the School of Mass Communication at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and associate director of the Center for Journalism Ethics. Well, maybe the War of the Worlds broadcast couldn't fool us today, but in some ways it's sort of disappointing. I mean, you don't want that panic, of course, but it's, you know, we've lost that shared experience. Um, maybe I'm it's a little romantic, but the idea of everyone crowding around a radio and listening to this radio drama. Well, yeah, but I figured those photos were always posed. I don't know. But, you know, part of it is just that the media are so diffuse now. You get hundreds of television channels. There are thousands of radio stations. It's pretty hard to get everybody to listen to the same drama at the same time. But now that everything is archived, digitally archived, you can listen to the War of the Worlds broadcast anytime you want. Yes. You can panic at your own pace and at your own time. That's right. You could panic and then pause and go get a snack and come back and listen to it again and and resume panicking. Well, finally, as Katie Culver said, we all have a responsibility to keep misinformation from spreading. So now in Skeptic Check, it's your turn to be skeptical of us. Occasionally, big picture science makes a goof and quick-eared listeners catch what we don't. And that was the case with California listener David Hewitt, who wrote saying he had a problem with something he heard on one of our shows. We'll let him explain. Well, a a little problem, yes. Uh, It was on the uh, recent episode about robots. How did we mess up? Well, uh, you noted that Robbie the Robot was a character on Lost in Space, a television program from many decades ago. And that isn't quite right. Matter of fact, it's quite wrong. Oh, The Lost in Space robot, lame as he was, was simply called Robot, whereas Robbie the Robot, uh, he was from the film Forbidden Planet with Walter Pidgeon. One of my favorite films, I must say, I think you're right, and it's particularly embarrassing, Dave, because a number of years ago, I was on a TV show called To Tell the Truth, and uh, people were trying to impersonate me, actually, and one of the guys who was doing that was a fellow by the name of Bob May. And Bob May was the guy who was stuffed inside that robot suit in Lost in Space. Ah. (laughs) I would apologize, but I'm not quite sure to whom I should apologize. Well, I suppose robot kind the world over, or the galaxy over, perhaps. If if we have a mailing list for them, we'll be sure to get in touch. Uh, Dave, I want to thank you very much for bringing this to my attention. Well, it's my pleasure, but uh, despite any little trip-ups, please keep up the great work. Thanks so much, Dave. Thank you. You can hear the original segment that includes the Robbie the Robot glitch in Welcome to Our Laboratory at BigPictureScience.org. We're pretty sure that that's the last error we'll make, but uh, if you catch one, send us an email and let us know. BigPictureScience at SETI.org. We're also sure of this. Our show would not be possible without Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. And we're grateful to support from Google, also Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check, War of the Worlds. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.